0: Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome back to Before the Lights Podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment have made their mark. Today on the show, we have a leading voice on relationships, emotional wellness, finding hope and direction. He is a level one certified civil rights and Title IX investigator, along with being part of the National Center of Higher Education Risk Management Program. He is a Ramsey personality and aids people and reclaiming their lives and take responsibility for your thoughts and your behaviors he holds two phds in counseling and higher education the host of the immensely popular dr john deloney show on youtube and anywhere podcast or found it is my pleasure to welcome to the show dr john deloney
1: how are you today john Man, thanks, Tommy. That introduction was something else, man. I'm going to have to send that to my wife so she can remember that I'm worthy of love too (laughs) sometimes. Man, thank you so much. How are you good, man?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I I appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule and talking to all your calling listeners and being part of my show.
1: No, absolutely, man. I love what you're doing here. It's fantastic.
0: I appreciate it. We're going to kind of go a little bit different spectrum here and kind of jump around. But first off, Who was John Deloney as a child and how did those years shape you to where you are today?
1: I grew up in the home of a homicide detective. My dad was a homicide detective and a SWAT hostage negotiator in Houston. So he was a bad dude. And my mom was a stay at home mom who would sometimes rail against religious issues in public schools. And about halfway through my life um, and these years kind of crossed in my mind now, but my mom went to her first community college class around the age of 42. And she was, did a good job. We, we, I was a freshman in high school. So I think we took algebra or geography, uh, geometry together, something like that. Then she took another class and another class and another class. She ended up as a controller at Deloitte and two. She ended up working at Enron, which is that little company that went away overnight. Yeah. And, um, And at age 57, she graduated with her PhD in English. Then she became a tenured professor, I think at 63, and now she's 70. And um, as a department chair at at a major university there in Texas. My old man, on the other hand, was always um, supporting youth programs and was volunteering at our, our large church there in Houston. And literally over one weekend, he goes from being a homicide detective and a SWAT guy to a youth pastor at a large church. And so um, I grew up in a house with a cop and a minister as an old man and a stay at home mom and a ninja graduate student mother. And um, so I was a uh, kind of an outcast kid. I like to read. I was a nerd, uh, but I was also a great athlete. And so that bought me some street cred. I love being in a in a Punk rock at a rock and roll metal band as a kid, and I was also always trying to perform and let everybody know that I was special. And so I lied a lot, I stole a lot, I got to try to get away with things a lot. Um, and so it was just kind of this mixed bag of who am I, and and I want to make sure the sheen is right and the the tinfoil is shiny. Um, that that's my childhood in a nutshell. And then I met a girl at a summer camp and. I had a track scholarship to one college. I met her and threw that all away and followed her out to West Texas. And then the the whole wacky back half of my life has taken taken place. So.
0: <laughs> that brings us kind of up to speed. But there you go. Was your father part of the influence and in how you got into training police and SWAT teams?
1: Yeah, I, I just grew up with when a when a big deal was happening in Houston when people needed somebody to go in a place where nobody else wanted to go when there was a um, somebody who was going to jump off of a building or there'd been a shooting. I just have these memories of my old man getting this cockamini little grin and he'd put on his bulletproof vest and he would go down there and he'd spend 24 hours sitting with somebody trying to keep him from jumping off something or from taking somebody else's life. I also had this weird experience. Uh, My dad was kind of a go-to guy in our community and his closet, his little bitty closet backed up to my bedroom. And if I laid in my bed at night, I could hear him. He would drag, this is back when phones had cords to him. (laughs) He would drag the the corded phone into his closet to talk to people in our community whose kids were in jail or who were struggling with their own addictions. And I could lay real quiet and I could listen through the door. And I learned, it just, just, I absorbed this at a young age that, man, uh, I don't care who you are. I don't care what stature you hold. I don't care where you go to church, what your job is everybody's struggling and everybody's got stuff going on behind closed doors that most don't know about. And I, 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 it just kind of became a part of me, if you will.
0: And that kind of leads into, you are a certified critical incident and stress management and behavioral intervention team as a communication crisis responder. Then were you drawing back from some of these times prior to listening through the door and all the education you had behind you to help in some of these critical situations?
1: I, you know, I I, hmm, I, I served as a as a dean of students or a senior student affairs leader at four different universities um, and various levels, right? Running housing or running the dean of students office or student conduct or whatnot. And that, I think those years doing that, listening to tragedy after tragedy and working with parents and just working with students when the wheels had fallen off their dreams or they had made a decision that... Um, they were going to have to go to jail for, or have to leave school for learning to sit with folks in hard moments. And at the same time, try to shine a light on the back end of this, letting them know there's light on the other end of this. Um, and then holding parents when they found out their kid had, had died or that their kid was in a bad wreck and may not make it through the evening. Those are the moments that I just, just became a part of working in higher education year after year after year. And then that translated to, um, a connection with an old counseling professor, Dr. Andy, Andy Young, who is a saint and a mentor and and somebody who I hold in high regard, but he's the one who was one of my professors and also in the evenings um, after hours um, worked with local police officers, trained them, showed up at death notifications, showed up at car wrecks, just kept showing up and showing up. And then he ended up creating a team that I was a part of that, that served people after hours really behind closed doors and no one knew we existed to a large degree.
0: For my listeners, John is named the National Distinguished Staff Member Matador Award, the life-changing award from Student Bar Association, and the Award of Excellence from the Black Law Students Association. 2018, he was a dean of at Belmont University. What were your responsibilities? Because from looking into your background, it looks like that job had a list of responsibilities that was pages long.
1: Yeah, man you you must have got a hold of my of the inside stuff. Man. I don't even know people at this job have that stuff. Um, as the chief student affairs officer, as the dean of students, th- the way I would um, explain my job to my friends is the other 153, and what I meant by that was 15 hours a week, give or take, a students in a classroom. The other 153 hours of that week. That's my classroom. And that's where students are learning to break up, to fall in love, to get in trouble, to um, deal with food allergies they didn't know they had, to deal with mental health crisis they didn't know they had, to, to separate themselves from parents, all that kind of stuff. Um, that was my classroom. And so, yeah, as the Dean of Students, you're over counseling centers and housing and, um, goodness, the career services sometimes. Sometimes you're dealing with underrepresented students and their unique situations and you're making sure everybody belongs on your campus. So yeah, it's pretty much everything and you're meeting with board of trustees and you're showing up in hospitals and you're <laughs> sitting with parents. So it's a 24 seven, 365 gig for sure.
0: What did you learn from handling all those early crisis situations that has helped you where you are today?
1: In a strange way, it's made me infinitely more optimistic about the human condition It makes me love people deeper. It makes me just an empathetic guy. I think at the end of the day, most people, most of the time are doing the best they can with the tools they've got in their toolkit. Most parents don't set out to handicap their kids by always getting involved, over-involved. Most parents are trying to relive their own childhoods because they were disconnected too. And most parents are trying to love the best way they know how. And sometimes that's over-involvement. Sometimes that's fill in the blank. Most kids are kids, man. They're making 18-year-old decisions. They're making 14-year-old decisions. They're, they're, and we forget that sometimes. And with how expensive college is, the stakes of those of those decisions are so weighty now, right? Uh, an 18-year-old can't be an 18-year-old because that's a $50,000 year, he's just blown, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or if they want to transfer college, that's a year of eligibility they've lost. And so it's just a pile on pile on effect. But um, it's made me empathetic. And so now when I take phone calls, I, my wife asked me the other day, um, we live out in the woods out here in Nashville. And she said the other day, what do you do? And I said, <laughs> I, I, I'm having the same conversations I've had with parents for the last 15 years. There's just some folks here at At Dave Ramsey's office that puts those calls on the internet and and then he's paying me a salary. so, um, it's very similar to what I've been doing for years, which is helping people make the next crooked, wobbly little step of their life in the best way they can.
0: Well, how does one handle trauma? And on top of that, I'm sure somebody that's 18, 19 years old in college views trauma very differently than somebody who's
1: a lot older. Right. Uh, so, I think it's important to define trauma. We we often think of trauma as what the nerds call what we call acute. Right? It's 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 point of sale. There is a car wreck. You saw somebody get shot. Your dad walked in and hit mom, or something something egregious like that. Trauma is two things, um, or it's actually three things. One of which we know, of, which I just said, but it's two other things. Number one is cumulative. And so dad doesn't have to come in and just cold cock their son. A mom doesn't have to come in there drunk one day and smash the car. Dad can just spend 14 years going <laughs> figures. Right? It's cumulative. And so mm-hmm. the way it, it it's a tiny little pebble in a backpack versus a cinder block. Over 15 years, the dismissiveness, the golly man, what a loser. Those kind of things add up, right? Those add up in the workplace. Those add up in whatever culture or society you live in if you're on the wrong side of of what's cool and what's supported. But it also, the third one is it's neglect. It's trauma is a thing that you should have got as a kid that you didn't get. You should have received somebody looking you in the eye and telling you that you're a person of value. You should have received somebody who loved you for more than your achievements, your accomplishments. And so those are three areas of trauma that adults deal with at age 50 and they play them out. In all sorts of grown-up games, 18-year-olds play those things out. 14-year-olds play those things out. Um, one of the great myths is that you, quote-unquote, just get over stuff. I think you got to be vulnerable. I think you got to have people in your life that you can walk through some of those things with. Um, and, yeah, I don't think any of us do a very good job of dealing with that most of the time.
0: I have this theory, and I just recently um, – actually, yesterday – told this to a friend of mine that there's a circle of relationships and whether it's with husband, wife, parents, and children that starts with respect, leads down to communication, which builds trust, which has love. Love mm-hmm. goes back up to respect. I said, kill one mm-hmm. of those four and the next one in line stops.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So give, me, give them to me one more time. You've got respect. Start, starts with respect that leads mm-hmm. into communication, open communication which builds mm. trust, which leads to love, which comes back to respect. So I said, mm. if you stop respecting someone, the communication will break down. Mm. If you don't trust someone, you will not love them. And if you don't love them, you'll get no respect mm. or you won't respect them. And that cycle will continue to go until somebody decides to break it. And mm. in relationships, when things go bad, one of those four things, in my opinion, is, is gone. And nobody's fixing it. And now I said, if it's a husband, wife, and a husband feels like they're not getting respected, they're going to stop the communication. You feel like you're not getting love. So you're not giving respect. And it's just this vicious circle that never ends.
1: Mm, I love it, dude. So the the word I would replace there, it's the same word. I just have heard people over the years weaponize the word respect, which is I demand you will give Mm. and respect to me always is a hierarchical thing. The word I would put there is value. Oh, I like it. I think, I think dads crave value, not because they're making money, not because they're big and they've got big arms, but just because they're dads and they love, and they don't know how to do that. We weren't trained to do that. We were trained to quit crying and get up and go run and go, go hit home run, whatever the thing is. Right. Right. And I think my wife wants to have value more than the things she can accomplish more than just the way she looks more than just to just to just, just she wants to have value because she's a person. And so, yeah, I I'm with you, man. I, I love that circle that if you're not communicating, if you're not honoring one another, then you just get in this weird dance, this almost figure eight dance and you never fully connect until somebody has the courage to stop that machine and face it head on and stare down that forest fire.
0: Can somebody get 1% better each day for a hundred days and change a habit, even though they say habits take 21 days to break. Is that possible? Uh,
1: I I think any sort of human transformation is possible. So yes, I'll a hundred percent agree with that. I'll a thousand percent agree with that. Um, I think a habit, it's just that it's a dance, right? Of actions versus thoughts and thoughts versus actions. Um, I think you can decide tomorrow I'm done and i've just known folks who have just said I, I, i'm done i know folks like myself who've tried to quit eating gummy candy my whole life and it's nature's heroin for me dude i just love me some gummy candy <laughs> i am a i eat so obnoxiously you don't know shame brother until you're sitting <laughs> in a in a in a in a grocery store with food that is eight times what it should be because i want to make sure the cow was hugged by like a a, a Roman monk before it was killed. Right. <laughs> and then on the other hand, I'm sitting there looking at bags of gummy candy, right? It's just like, my body's like, dude, pick one, man. Just pick one, right. Um, so, but yeah, I, I just known people who just said no more. I've known trauma survivors. I've known people who with weight loss, I've known athletes, I've known, um, addicts who just said enough, I'm putting those bricks down and I'm done. So absolutely.
0: How does one heal from an ex and not allowing the previous wounds to affect their present relationships?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Give me some more context to that. You know, it has one of those questions that the the podcast interviewer drops in that's personal. No,
0: no, no, it's <laughs> not personal.
1: <laughs> I'm Tommy. I'm no, it's not personal, but I mean So uh, how does somebody deal with their dad when the M's kid? Yeah,
0: no, I thought t- was, and I've I've heard of this many times. Somebody breaks up or they have a divorce, and those effects are still lingering with them. And they bring them to their new present relationship because they haven't really healed from the previous relationship.
1: Oh, that's awesome. So here's the thing, Tommy, as a culture, we are dreadful, terrible at grief. Okay. We are terrible at putting periods at the end of sentences. We're awful at it. We have no, uh, no cultural understanding of what being uncomfortable is. And so uh, man, I could I could talk all day about this. I think it was in the twenties, early thirties, when Good Housekeeping or Southern Living, one of these magazines, announced that the room in the front of the house is no longer the parlor; it is now the living room. It was a declaration, and we outsourced we outsourced death to somebody else. We outsourced food preparation to somebody else. We now can get wrinkles taken away. We can get fancy diets and fill in the blank. Right? We are not comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so when we get broken up with, we have this immediate sense of I'm a victim and that hurts. I pick up these cinder blocks and I start carrying them around and we don't do good with ceremony. We don't do good with this is over now. We don't do good with just sitting down and hurting for a minute. That's a natural grieving process. What we've done as a society brothers, we have pathologized every negative emotion to where all we have is, Happiness and anxiety and depression. We have two diagnosis and firecrackers. That's it, man. And that's not human existence, right? No. I can't tell you how many college students who came in and were weeping. Hey, my granddad died. My mom just left my dad. I've got depression. And I would say, no, dude, you're sad. You're supposed to be sad this sucks. This is, this hurts. And you've got to get some people around you that you love and trust that can be vulnerable with that are going to help you heal from this. And um, so all that to say is, man, if you get dumped, you've got to spend some moment grieving that loss. A part of you that was, that helped you be whole is no more. And you got to put a period at that. You got to get people in your life. You got to properly grieve it. And then Understand what you've learned and then move on next, right? Don't just go chasing the next band aid, the next numbing agent, which is usually another person that's going to wallpaper over whatever you're trying to hold down, right? That's right. Oh, man, you're going to get me fired up on that one. I'm going to get you fired up here in a second. We're joined today by Dr. John Deloney.
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Reflection Bay Golf Club, located in the heart of beautiful Lake Las Vegas. Go to reflectionbaygolf.com. That's reflection bay It's a top 100 course that the public can play. It's a Jack Nicklaus signature prestige design that played host to the Wendy's three tour challenge from 1998 to 2007. And John, if you ever get to Vegas and uh, you're a golfer rounds on me, let me know. I'll hook you up. i will take you out there. It's a beautiful spot.
1: Tommy, listen, you remember that movie, uh, 10 cup. Yeah. Uh, that wonderful, wonderful golf movie. Well, it was part of it was filmed right down the street from my house. Um, that scene where he keeps hitting the ball into the pond, it's right? I used to play in that pond and I had some buddies in high school that worked at that golf course. And man, I was so terrible at golf. They wouldn't let me join them for free because they would say, dude, you just, you're just ruin our good time. We just want to have fun and you're so bad and you get so frustrated. So a hundred percent chance next time in Vegas, Tommy, we're going golfing and, after about a whole four, you're going to be like, all right, man, I'm good. That's all I'm
0: right. right. We'll, we'll have fun. We'll just have a ball out there.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm terrible.
0: <laughs> all right, uh, next thing. What is the differences of being a single parent? And on top of that, are kids as resilient as we think they are?
1: Um, so let's go to the first part of that question. When you say the differences of being a single parent versus a two parent household versus a two parent household. Correct. Hmm. Um, I, I, I come back to a central statement. My good friend, Rachel Cruz here at Dave Ramsey's office mentions, uh, says it in a, in a precise way, more is caught than taught. Um, I worked for a psychologist as a part of an internship. So when I was going back and getting another degree, like an idiot old nerd, um, I had to do an internship again. So I ended up having an intern for a psychologist that was probably 10 years younger than me. And this guy was brilliant. And we were working with traumatized, abused kids for a summer and one time we were walking from one room to the next, I had a young son. So I would try to ask these uh, veiled parenting questions as though I was asking him about the kids we were working with. But I just want to know, you know, from my own house, how to be a good dad. And I asked, Hey, how do you, how are you going to teach this kid who we had just gotten out of to respect women when this is what he's heard his whole life? How, what do you say to this kid? And I'll never forget. He just started laughing and he looked at me and said, kids don't listen to you, man. They watch you. And I said, Oh, that hurts. <laughs> so <laughs> he he went on to say, you can say whatever you want to a kid. They're going to watch how you act. So if you want a kid to respect women, treat your wife, right. And then he just went into the next room. This is a young kid. And I just thought, man, that's so smart. So coming back to that, I think the blessing of a two person home is number one, the two people who are um, co-leading that house, get to lean on one another. Everyone has up days and down days and busy seasons at work. And, frightening seasons with moms their parents and their experiences and their anxieties and their slow seasons. And so there just becomes a rhythm. People can pick up the slack bigger than that. You give a, what I would call a dual model to a kid. They get to watch a dad, they get to watch a mom and they are programming themselves. They are learning the ways that a guy responds when they're frustrated. They're learning ways that women respond when they are joyful. And so they get this dual model. Otherwise, when in a single parent house, they, they're left to guess. They're left to... They take characteristics of mom and try to extrapolate them to dad, to other situations. And there's just there just is this gap. The second thing that I think kids struggle with in a single-parent home is kids are... The nerd word is co-regulated. They get who they are from their heartbeat to the way their facial expressions work to how they experience the world in relationship with other people. And so when there is a gap, when somebody leaves, when somebody is not in the home, they backfill that gap with, it's probably my fault and I need to figure out how to fix that. And so you'll see kids act out. You'll see kids become overly perfectionist. You'll see kids struggle with frustration and anger issues because they are trying to do whatever they can with their little mechanism to backfill that, that gap. And so that's when connection, 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 making sure those kids are loved and, and you're in touch with who they are is so critical. Other side of that, are kids resilient? Oh my gosh. Yes. The good Lord made them out of rubber, dude. They are resilient. They are. They are strong. Um, They just want to not be lied to. They just want to have somebody in their life that looks them in the eye and says, you are a value, not because of what you're going to achieve, not because of the grades. Is that stuff important? Of course it's important, but you have value first and you achieve off of a platform of you have worth, not the other way around.
0: When you talked about connection, this just came to mind. How has texting affected you know, real communication,
1: dude? You're like in my underwear drawer, brother. You're like <laughs> getting all of my all of my things, man. Um, I I say it all the time. It's it's one of my little nerdy slogans, but communication is not connection, and I'm gonna pick a, a data that. Uh, you know, a statistic that best supports my argument here, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 90% of communication is nonverbal. We absorb other people when we hear and talk to them. And in the last 15, 20 years, we have just outsourced 70% of interactions to black and white texts. And so I'm reading into my v- tone of voice. I'm reading into right. my narrative of your situation. My bad day comes through the words you just wrote to me. And think about this, 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 was made apparent to me during COVID. Um, the person I was texting the most was my wife. The person I was saying over and over to again all day, I love you. I'm so grateful that you're here. And we're going to get through this was my wife. What I, did I not say to her when we were in person? I love you. And I'm so glad we're getting through this because I'd said it 20 times that day. Yeah. And so she heard it through her frontal lobe. She didn't feel it through her amygdala and she was never safe. She never felt connected because I was giving her information. I wouldn't plug it in with her. So now we've got a whole generation of kids, Tommy, that they don't know what connection is. I heard one great speaker say they are over and under-experienced. They've seen 10,000 dead bodies on video games. They've never felt the weight of being in, a, in at a at a funeral wake when there's a dead body in a room, right? They've seen 10,000 sex acts on TV They've never blown an entire movie just trying to get their hand close enough so they can touch the other, you know, touch her hand and then, <laughs> and then try to hold her hand. Right? They waste the whole movie, right? Right. Trying to make that move, they don't have that experience. They just go from zero to sixty, and all the interactions are electronic. They're all zero one zero one zero one, and yeah, I that's a that's a it's a dangerous tool we've handed to our kids, and we've told kids who are not uh, mature that are not developed make good decisions, kids. And then we've set off into the woods, man. And it's, it's a, it's a troubling, troubling thing we've done to our young people.
0: Is there a way to correct it or change it?
1: (laughs) Man, I, I don't make any friends with this statement, but, (laughs) um, I can tell you right now, my kid won't have a phone. I've got two kids and they don't have a phone. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a lunatic about that stuff, Tommy. Um, they can step into the wrong website and enter portals that they can't get back, Mm -hmm. right? They see things that they can't get back. They have conversations with people that they can't get back. Um, Our brains have some pretty remarkable, as you mentioned, resilient mechanisms for protecting us. I remember the town bully that lived by me growing up. I remember he said some mean stuff growing up. I remember we had some tussles on my neighbor's trampoline growing up, but my brain did a good job of letting the air out of some of that over the years. That's not in black and white text for me to read and reread and reread and reread. Right. Um, I remember so-and-so was a jerk. I don't remember exactly what she said. And there's something that you can imprint on your soul when you get text message after text message. And so um, I'm antiquated, man. I probably sound like the guy that when Henry Ford was rolling out his model T's, I was like, what about the horses? I know I sound like that guy. Um, I am adamant about the notion that kids crave human connection, not screens. And they default to screens only because the adults in their life have abandoned them.
0: And we talked off the air before we started. I'm a former basketball coach. You were in the same field. Mm. And I was a big defensive guy. And I demanded my guys to talk Mm. on defense. The more years that I coached, the harder that was to get through. Mm. Because I said to two kids that were literally standing five feet apart, you guys have texted each other all day long and he's five feet away from you and you can't tell him a screen is coming before it takes his head off or he Mm. injures himself. I said, if you were sitting in the car as a passenger and he was driving and a car was out of control and was going to T-bone you, would you just sit there and text him or would you say something to tell him to look out? Right, right. (laughs) You know, so sometimes I had to use different analogies to get them to understand that I have to open my mouth and talk. I can't put stuff into, as you say, black and white, it's not, you can't do that in all phases of life. Right. I understand texting can be, it's used. I use it a ton. I'm, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm a culprit of that, but
1: I am too. I am too.
0: But there's, there's, I think you need to have real conversations with people because people don't want to pick up the phone anymore.
1: It's like, don't call me, text me. I'm like, why can't we talk? That's right. (laughs) So a, a couple of things in my world, I don't blame the kids. This is an adult problem. This is our fault. This is our issue. The kids are just doing what we allow. It's the same as when a parent tells me my, my six-year-old will only eat chicken nuggets. It's like, dude, I promise you, your kid won't starve. right? right. You don't want to do with the two weeks of screaming and yelling and fighting. You don't want to unwind that. And I get that. That sucks. But the deal is the kid's not going to starve. They will figure it out. Right. And right. the same with kids. Um, and then the second thing is, is to your point, I have a rule. I have to talk to somebody on the phone or in person every day. That's a rule of mine because otherwise I can get through work and then realize other than my wife and two kids, I can just become a hermit, man. Mm -hmm. And I know that the, I know the research and the psychology of that. That's just going to unwind me and I'm not going to be well.
0: Yeah. Why do people tolerate things we know are not good for us?
1: Oh man, I was (laughs) what perfect timing. I was just listening to a phenomenal podcast by two authors of one of my favorite books. Um, it's called mistakes were made, but not by me. And I don't remember the name of the two authors, but it's a book about, um, cognitive dissonance. And in short, and sh- I'll, I'll, I'll get to the point cause I can kind of geek out on this. Smoking is, is the big example, right? We live in this tension where, um, We get all the information about how bad smoking is. And we also all walk around with this idea that we're pretty smart and pretty good people. And so if we find ourselves in the middle of that gap as someone who smokes and we realize, Oh, this is really bad for us. I keep hearing it's going to kill me, give me lung cancer, ruin the world, all this, but I'm also a good person and pretty smart. Our wiring suggests that we go after the other person. So what I'm going to do is pick apart Oh, that's a government conspiracy to shut down the (laughs) farming industry, right? It's their study wasn't even done that well, or it was, it was, it was, the study was done by Diet Coke because they want you to drink Diet Coke instead of smoke or whatever the thing is, right? So whenever we're faced with cognitive dissonance, it's always us, something we hold dear. I'm loved. So it must be you or a political party. I must be smart. And I vote this way. So the other person must be evil. And so uh, we just keep, we, we vacillate back and forth. So people continue to do things to uphold, um, uh, uphold their image of themselves, even doing stupid things to keep going. And Hey, here's the other thing. Um, oh, the author of that book is Carol Tav- Tavris and Elliot Aronson. Two, uh, two pioneers in psychology. So, um, Oh, I just lost it, Tommy. That's all right. It was it was the smartest thing I was I was gonna say. Oh, oh, this is it. This is it. Um we forget this, Tommy. Our brain has one job, and that's to to get to tomorrow. That's it. It's not for us to live a long life or a happy life, it's to get to tomorrow. Every cell in the human body has one job, and that's to make it to tomorrow. And so when we have childhood traumas we haven't dealt with, when we have relationships that are a mess and that cause us literal physical pain. When we are in trapped in poverty systems or whatever system we're in that we're, we feel stuck in, if we have a coach that's a jerk, our brain will do what it needs to do to get us to tomorrow. And sometimes that's another drink. Sometimes that's another person that I'm making a relationship outside of my current relationship. Sometimes that is five hours playing video games. That's just an extra something. It's a way that our body can... Our brain can numb us out, let today be over so we can get to the next sunshine rise, then we'll go from there, right? And so we just keep doing these things almost automatically to protect us from the relational hurt that we're all struggling from.
0: Steps to experiencing happiness if you don't feel happy. And it's something that I feel like is not going to change overnight. Mm. And sometimes the first step of anything that we change is always the hardest one. But for somebody who's listening that feels like, yeah, I could be happier. I want to be happy. What is your advice to take the first step? And what is that first step?
1: Man, number one, to me, the first step is to reframe your goal. I think happiness is a, an illusion. I think happiness as a day-to-day goal is a waste of time and energy. It becomes fireworks. Uh, I much rather seek joy. And the way I describe those two things is my granddad had the gift um, I call it the great life gift. Of, he's a World War II vet. He worked at the same place there in Houston for 30 years. One of the most extraordinary men I've ever known. He had the gift at 93 or 94. He stood up and was walking to the other room and he got to fall down dead. There was no hospitals. There was no cancer. He just fell over and that was it. And at his funeral, um, the they came and played taps. It was a sad moment. It was a heartbreaking day at his funeral. And I'll never forget my son. He he was maybe three at the time. He saw everybody dropping roses onto the casket. He escaped from my grasp, crawled up on the casket, and grabbed a rose and put it up there. And that wasn't a happy moment, a happy moment Tommy, Mm-mm. but that was a deeply joyful moment that was four generations of deloney passing in that moment my granddad lived a beautiful life all of his kids were there his people were there he served his country he served his profession he served his family served his church it was the way it's supposed to be that wasn't happy but that was joyful it was right and so when we get into this um this frantic search for happiness at all times that's when we don't work out because it doesn't feel happy it's happier just to drink our coffee and go sit on the front porch. That's when we don't make that phone call that we need to do to repair that relationship that we broke because it's not gonna make us happy. And so what I would tell you is number one, start searching for joy, the right deep good stuff. And then I'm gonna go back to who uh, one of my favorite basketball coaches in the world, Chris Beard says is trust the process. Trust the process. And so know what your morning routine is, know what the things that make you well are gonna be, and keep doing those things, even when you don't quote unquote feel happy, even when you feel super sad, trust the process and on a long enough trend line, you're gonna have more joy in your life than than not.
0: With this pandemic that's going on, how does somebody learn to adjust to a new normal and realize that what we thought and experienced as normal may not come back?
1: It goes back to the grief, Tommy you've got to have the courage and the wherewithal and the people in your life to put a period at the end of that sentence. It was a fun ride. We, we did 20 years. We did 10 years after the last recession. We as a country put everything on a credit and we just have lived like a bonanza. Right. Right. And then COVID shows up a small little illness that we can't see and it called our bluff. And so here we are. Everything shut down overnight. Nothing we couldn't control. We, I mean, we controlled way less than we thought we could, right? I think we have to grieve that loss of control. We have to grieve the 2020 that we had planned, the 2021 that we had planned. And then we have to be honest about what can we control, what can we not control. We got to drop the nonsense that we can't control. Um, I get one vote in the election, Tommy. I get one. Me watching every single debate and twist and turn and watching all the news that I'm just deciding I'm going to make myself crazy. That's, that's my, that's my goal today, <laughs> right? I get one vote, I get one shot and I'm going to take my shot and, I'm to, and then I'm going to back out because that's, that's what I can control there. Right. And then I'm going to spend my energy loving locally, taking care of my local community, the people in my sphere, right? That's what I got. That's what I can do.
0: John, what does being a Ramsey personality mean to you and for our listeners these are handpicked by Dave Ramsey himself and are usually either a number one bestselling author or an expert at changing live. What does that mean to you to be part of the Ramsey productions?
1: Oh man. That means a lot to me. Number one, it's, um, it's a significant responsibility. Um, I often will tell groups, I know you guys want to be Dave. Um, <laughs> you love his homes and he gets to be on the radio and his cars are super nice. Um, but he also carries the weight of a thousand employees and their kids and their marriages. And at that big of a company he carries with him, the real estate market in South Nashville. If he were to go out of business, if he was to say a stupid thing on the radio that got him canceled out, um, that would be devastating to the region. He also represents common sense. He represents financial matters. He represents faith matters. Um, so he has decided to take a lot of stuff on his back And most people don't get to see that level, that responsibility. And so the first thing is a responsibility. The second thing, it's one of the greatest privileges in the world. What a gift, man. Mm -hmm. Um, I get paid to get in the mud with folks in the hard parts of their life. And that's such a gift and an honor and to walk alongside them. And then sometimes to stick a hand out and help them out. And then you help hose each other off. And then we go about our day, right? That's right read and write for a living, which is just, I mean, it's, it's a glitch in the matrix as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then it's scary as I'll get out. I have worked the last decade to disappear from the internet. The fact that you have my CV freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> no, you got it. Um, but I've worked really hard to not exist on the internet. I just wanted to be at my little colleges that I worked at. And so um, it's uncomfortable and nerve wracking for me, which means it was the right thing to do.
0: The Dr. John Deloney Show is a caller-driven show that gives you real-life talk on relationships, life experiences, and people, if you don't get these, I'm going to put them in the show links for you so you can get them there. You can call and leave a voicemail to 844-693-3291. That's 844-693-3291, or you can email askjohn at ramseysolutions.com. That's askjohn at ramseysolutions.com. Outside of those two platforms, where else can people connect with you?
1: Um, I, the other internets, the at John Deloney is the the social medias and then the YouTube channel, uh, YouTube slash John Deloney. You can find me there as well.
0: How can somebody actually believe that they can change their life regardless of what how old they are? I think some people look at it and go,
1: I'm X number of years old. It's too late for me to change my life. Mm. I'm man. I got to see it in my house. And so the, my answer to that is this, we often think in pictures, but we speak in words. And what that means is we talk about, you can do anything. You can change your life at 50, at 40, at 30. If you don't have a picture of what that looks like, if you don't have a person that, you know, if you don't have somebody that you have seen, it's going to be very hard to conjure that up in your mind. And so, You've got to get people around you that have been there, that have walked that journey, and that you can actually see it so that you can live into it. At, at 40, I had no excuse to not change jobs. I watched my old lady, who's a straight-up 70-year-old gangster now, Tommy, um, <laughs> go from, you're not allowed, you're not supposed to go to college, to now she is running a department Um, When most people are starting to let their foot off the gas. And so I had no excuse. I had a picture of what changed my old man going from being an awesome police officer and detective to an incredible person who worked with youth people. And now he's back. He's a teacher now. Um, So it's, you gotta have a picture of what that looks like. Any plans to write a book? I just, (laughs) Man, you are teeing me up today, Tommy. You should do this for a living, man. Um, I just—we just hit send on a a very small but a a precision arrow book on anxiety, redefining anxiety. Um, we blame anxiety for a lot of stuff, and it's not the it's not what's to be blamed. It's just the alarm system. So, I've just finished a book on a short book on anxiety, and then we are starting the process to write uh, the big book here very 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 shortly.
0: When will the uh, short book be out? Um, November. In November. Very right. quick. Yes, sir. That is good. So, people, keep an eye out for the book. Dr. John, I appreciate your time, man. This has been fun. As you say, we could wrap here all day about this stuff. It's been a great time.
1: You're awesome, Tommy. Thank you so much for letting me join you and your fun Before the Lights crew, man. This is awesome.
0: Thank you. Uh, for show notes, go to our website, com. You can follow us on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And don't forget to please rate and review the show. Five stars, nice comments are always appreciated. Until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin.